Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about strange things in space like radiation and fungal spores travelling the universe. Now space can seem empty, but even in that vastness of emptiness of space, radiation can permeate through it and can play havoc with things like fungal spores and other life. But it also produces beautiful things like the aurora borealis and potentially have some incredibly complicated shapes lurking in the deep blackness of space. This week, the strange things lurking hidden in space. Now when we think of space weather, certain images come to mind. Maybe it's tremendous solar flares or perhaps the passing of a comet in a meteor shower. But space weather can actually have a real down-to-earth impact. And one really classic case of space weather that you're probably familiar with is, of course, the northern lights, the aurora borealis, or in the southern hemisphere, the aurora australis. Now, this is the fantastical light show that you see in the skies, which occurs when particles from our sun bombard the Earth's magnetic field, Now, as all those particles from the sun's solar wind hit the Earth's magnetosphere, well, something interesting happens. The Earth's magnetosphere absorbs all that energy, stores it up till it hits a critical point, where it then dumps out, suddenly, all of that electrical current into the ionosphere. Now, what all of that means is, basically, the energy from the sun sort of gets buffered and and built up inside our magnetosphere, then just gets dumped out in large bursts. Now, this can cause all kinds of beautiful displays in the sky, but it also changes the magnetic field. If you're not familiar with this, the way electricity and magnetism are interconnected is quite complex but straightforward. Basically, electricity and magnetism are two part of the one whole. Go into more theory about uh, Maxwell's equations and so on if you'd like, but basically think that whenever you see something involving electricity, magnetism or magnetic fields are also somewhere involved in it as well. So if you're going to dump large amounts of current into the ionosphere, you're also going to generate some magnetic fields. And this can cause related disturbances in the magnetic field of Earth. Now, small versions of these storms, of these solar storms that can lead to things like the aurora borealis or the aurora australis, happen very frequently. Not on a predictable schedule, but they do occur quite regularly. But occasionally, just like we have small and large weather storms, on Earth, these stellar weather can also have some pretty large events. These larger storms can lead to huge amounts of impact. So to study this, researchers from the University of Warwick, led by Professor Sandra Chapman, distributed over a hundred different ground-based magnetodemons. And these were all connected into a pretty intricately engineered social network. Now, the idea here was to basically build a whole bunch of distributed sensor devices. And these sensors would basically look for changes in the Earth's magnetic field on the ground. Now, by studying the changes in the Earth's magnetic sphere from the ground, you can actually get a good indication on exactly how widespread a particular stellar event is and exactly what impact it's going to have in discrete areas on the ground. Thinking about it another way, it's like about having a whole bunch of rain gauges to measure exactly how much rainfall is falling and where. Just instead of doing it with rain, Professor Sandra and her team are actually using the magnetometers to actually d- discover this. Now, the way that these are all configured is incredibly interesting as well, because they all function as discrete monitoring devices. 
but they can all link up with each other, forming a social network. When one magnetometer starts seeing measurement changes, it looks and asks its peers around it to say, hey, are you seeing this too? And basically it builds a network of friends who say, yeah, I saw some of that. And they, they expand their network. And from that, you can actually give it at any given point in time, a pretty accurate picture of what an neural disturbance and the storm it's producing, how it looks like, how it forms at the very beginning and propagates and spreads. Get really precise details on how quickly these weather events happen and how they change over time, whether or not there's some strange pockets or get an idea for how all these electrical currents move through our atmosphere. And this is exciting because all these currents move in the atmosphere and the magnetic echo is left on the ground, which we can study. And localized changes in the Earth's magnetic field can have a really substantive impact on everyday life. Because if there's a particularly large spike, it can disrupt power lines, electronics and communication systems, and even things like GPS. And that's just one way that space weather can affect our planet on a constant daily basis. So in knowing exactly how these space weather phenomena impact us on the ground by studying how they spread, is actually pretty important. And all this is part of the SuperMag project, which researchers from the University of Warwick's Department of Physics are involved in. So by analyzing with these 100 plus distributed sensors, we get a real time picture of what a weather event looks like in exciting and precise detail, which is what we need to have in order to build accurate models and study and predict these into the future. Now, all of this was collected and published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters and some great work out of the University of Warwick in the UK. Now, when you think about space radiation, things like the Fantastic Four or maybe the Hulk come to mind, gamma ray bursts and exciting things that can transform someone from a normal person into a superhero. But the sad reality of actual space radiation is much more real and much more worrying than that. Now, everyone who travels to space or even up in an airplane is exposed to a significant amount of radiation. It varies, but it's not necessarily something that's going to cause a lot of problems. One of the major measures for radiation is the gray, which is a measure of absorbed dose of ionizing radiation, or another way, a joule of radiation energy per kilogram of tissue. For a sense of scale for how much a gray can have is, well, five gray is enough to just flat out kill someone. And half a gray is the threshold for normally considering radiation sickness. But when it comes to space travel, your exposure to radiation can increase, which is why all of the spaceships that we use actually have a lot of protective coating. In fact, on the first Apollo mission, scientists were so worried that the radiation present in the Van Allen belts would be significant enough that it would instantly kill any astronaut who tried to pass through it. Now, fortunately, that wasn't the case, but it does bear some careful study and preparation. For example, on a 180-day voyage to Mars, you would be exposed to around a cumulative dose of about 0.7 gray. So that's quite a bit when you think about it. Now, that means that researchers need to understand how the human body responds to radiation and ways to better protect against it. And that's important for sure. 
But another interesting aspect of all of this is what happens to everything else that's exposed to that radiation. Now, we've spoken a few times on this podcast about the interplanetary protection that we put all spacecraft through. And we try and scrub them up and clean them up as much as possible. And the reason why we do that is we don't want to find life somewhere on the universe and then destroy it from our garbage that we took with us. Basically, we're trying to do no harm in all of our space exploration efforts. And that means even if it is a robotic mission, we will still try and make sure it's clean. And the way we typically clean it is we usually bombard these devices and anything that goes up to space with a large amount of ionizing radiation, huge amounts of x-rays and other heavy ions. And we bombard and bombard and bombard them. And we do that to try and kill anything that might be living on the surface. We scrub them down, we heat them up, and we try and make sure that they're as clean as possible. But the problem is, what happens if something just shrugs all that radiation off? just absorbs it and just moves on with everyday life. And that's what researchers from the German Aerospace Center, known as the DLR, based in Cologne, have been investigating. And they recently published at the Astrobiology Science Conference 2019. A lot of this research was led by Marta Cosa... A lot of this research was led by Marta Cotasio. Now... What she was looking at was some of the two most common types of mold that are found right now at this very moment on the International Space Station. This is the Asparagulus and the Penicillin. And the reason why she's looking at those is, well, at the moment, astronauts have to scrub down and pull apart and clean out all the nooks and crannies of the ISS on a very frequent basis. Just like you would for your bathroom, just in space where it's much harder to clean. Now, the reason is all of the air in the space station is basically circling around forever. So if there's any mold that takes place there and takes root, then that could be very quickly very dangerous for everyone who lives there. Mostly because penicillin and aspergillus aren't normally harmful. But if you inhale a large amount of the spores, you can get very sick very quickly, especially if your immune system is weak, say from being in space for four months. There's a big problem though, and that, that is that mold spores can withstand extreme temperatures, ultraviolet light, chemicals, and dry conditions. This makes them really hard to kill. So these type of fungal spores resist radiation, but Mata Quattagio tried to find out exactly how much. Now, she bombarded these types of spores with different amounts of x-ray exposure. For example, 200 times the dose of what would normally kill a human. But, of course, the fungal spores just shrugged it off. Now, if you want to think about this mission to Mars that we are speaking about earlier, it's hard enough to try to keep the ISS clean, but on a long-term mission to Mars, keeping that moving spaceship clean could be a very serious threat. If you want to go even further than that, that's an even bigger deal. So, she simulated space radiation in a laboratory, and she hit these fungal spores with ionizing radiation from X-rays, from heavy ions, and some other type of high-frequency ultraviolet light that actually doesn't normally make it to Earth, but in space is present in large abundance. Now, all of these ionizing radiation normally kills a cell by damaging their DNA and pretty much breaking down all of the essential infrastructure inside the cell, the things that the cell needs to feed and to reproduce. 
Now, Earth's magnetic field typically projects spacecraft in low Earth orbit, like the International Space Station. But if you go outside of Earth's protective sphere of influence, well, you get exposed to a lot more. So anything going to the Moon or Mars would get a large amount of extra radiation. So how did the spores fare? Well, compared to the humans, these spores survived exposure to X-rays to up to a thousand gray, which, by the way, five gray is enough to kill a person. So these tiny spores were able to survive 200 times the radiation that a human could take. And they were also exposed to all these heavy ions and weird ultraviolet light. And basically, they just chugged along with just a shrug. Now that's pretty exciting to think about for another reason. And that is, not only could they survive on the inside, but they could also survive on the outside, which is really, really strange and terrifying to think about, especially if we tried to scrub, using the radiation we could produce here on Earth, the outside of that spacecraft. It goes to show that, potentially, we are not actually cleaning as thoroughly as we once thought. But it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to fungal spores. Now, when you think about it, fungal spores, like penicillin, are actually much more closely related genetically than bacteria. And that's useful for a number of reasons. Fungi have a complex inner cell structure, pretty much like ours, and they have cellular equipment that could use, use to build polymers, to food, vitamins, and other useful molecules. Now, why does that matter? Well, in space travel, you have to live off the land, so to speak. Everything that you need for your trip needs to come with you, or you need to make it along the way. So be able to take something with you that's particularly hardy, that could be harnessed in the dangerous and tough conditions of space, well, that would be actually quite amazing. You could take along with you these microorganisms as biological factories to produce materials that people might need. That could even be everything from simply medicine, like antibiotics, to something much more complex, like building base polymers and vitamins that could be used for a thing like a 3D printer. And that's pretty exciting when you think about it. We can't take, obviously, livestock with us because they wouldn't survive the radiation. But, well, fungal spores may well do it. And they could survive on the outside of a spaceship. So there's a lot of interesting applications. So the hardiness and resistance of these fungal spores to radiation makes them a problem for cleaning, but it's also potentially an advantage, particularly for long-haul space travel, because now we have potentially very resistant tool in our arsenal. This is some great work from the German Aerospace Center, the DLR, by Marta Cotasio, which was recently published at the Astrobiological Science Conference. Now it's easy to think of space as basically in its expanse an empty space. Actually, when you say it, space, you picture emptiness. But that's not really true. Space isn't just a collection of emptiness between points of light like stars or planets. No, no, space is much more complicated than that. There's a lot of objects that are just hanging around in space. Some that we can see and others that we can't see. We've already talked about radiation and how they can permeate through space and have unseen impacts on it. The solar wind, for example, travels all the way through our solar system and beyond right to the edge at the heliopause. 
but there's a lot of other things that are just floating around through space. And we call this mysterious contents of space the interstellar medium, or ISM. And we've been studying that for a very long time. For example, the first two diffuse interstellar bands, these regions of space that seem to absorb or have different interactions with light around it, were outlined, observed and discovered all the way back in 1922 by Mary Lee Heger. And her groundbreaking paper on this sort of laid the groundwork for what is now a pretty interesting study area in astronomy trying to classify what's in the emptiness of space in this interstellar medium. Now, today there are around 400 of these diffuse interstellar bands categorized and discovered. But the problem is, scientists for a very long time haven't been able to figure out what on earth these bands are. And that's a problem. Now, because most of the interstellar medium is made of hydrogen and helium, number one and two in the periodic table, and the most common elements in the universe. But it's spiked with lots and lots and lots of other compounds that we just don't know what they are. And it's not like we can go up there and study them, because interstellar space is just incredibly remote. So the only way that we can figure out what's inside them is using, of course, things like spectroscopy. Looking at the elements and compounds inside the interstellar medium by seeing which types of light, which colours and wavelengths, are blocked out. So when you analyse starlight, you could separate into its different bands, the spectrum, and you can see which ones appear dim or are absent. And that gives you a clue as to what material is inside that region of space at that point in time too, because remember the Earth is rotating, as is the interstellar medium that we're in, so you're not necessarily ever looking at the same spot. But the problem is, some of these patterns from the interstellar medium are all over a broad range of colours which appear to be different from any of the known atoms or molecules we can find here on Earth. These are what we mean by we say these diffuse interstellar bands, these dibs. So there's so many of them out there that we don't really understand what they are or how they are. And a lot of the time, it can be very difficult to study them because the Earth's atmosphere itself gets in the way. Because our atmosphere too absorbs and reflects different types of light. So what do you get left with on the ground isn't necessarily all of the signal. So to try and filter all out what the atmosphere is filtering out for you and find out what element or molecule it is is incredibly difficult and challenging. Which is why researchers from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center have been using Hubble Space Telescope to try and piece together the mystery of some of these diffuse interstellar bands. That's what researchers like Martin Cordenham have been trying to piece together and they published recently in the journal Astrophysical Journal Letters some pretty outstanding discoveries. And that is that one of the interesting and hereto undiscovered or classified diffuse interstellar bands is actually made of, well, best way to describe it is electrically charged molecules in the shape of a soccer ball. Now, that sounds pretty cool, but it has to do with something called a buckyball, or to be used a formal name, a Buckminster Fullerene a arrangement of carbon atoms, 60 of them to be precise, to form a hollow sphere. Now, C60 is a theorized concept which can be manufactured and sometimes has found in rare cases naturally on Earth in the deep inside rocks and minerals. And sometimes it can actually turn up in high temperature combustion suits. But finding it in space is pretty rare. We've seen it before, but this is the first time it's actually been discovered in an electrically charged form. So to get ionized, which means to be electrically charged, the C60 has to have one of its electrons stripped away 
potentially by ultraviolet light from a star, which would give the C60 a slightly positive charge. Now, this is pretty exciting for two reasons. And the first is, when we think about interstellar space, we think about it being empty, void. But it's not. It's full of some incredibly complicated, massive atoms and molecules. Now, C60 is a pretty large molecule, 60 carbon atoms, isn't it? But the previous largest molecule that had been discovered naturally in the interstellar medium was around 12 atoms in size. So this is many times that. And not only that, it's actually electrically charged. So there are potentially really large, really complex molecules floating around in space that could have charges in them as well. And that's pretty exciting when you think about it, especially since carbon is one of the life-bearing molecules. It shows how complex carbon chains can form and survive and travel through space. You could think of carbon as one of the base vehicles for life as we know it, and seeing it travelling through space in a complicated format like a buckyball is pretty exciting. But now we at least have another piece in the puzzle to try and figure out and classify what these over 400 strange patterns that we can see in space, these diffuse interstellar bands, are. We found one of them, which was C60 as a positive ion, but trying to find a lot of other ones now and classify the remaining is going to be a lot of work. But tools like Hubble make it possible to try and analyse it. And now researchers can use big data and a whole bunch of simulation to try and churn through other potential sources of complex and large molecules based around carbon that might help explain some of these mysteries of the emptiness of space, or rather, not empty, but filled with incredibly complex and strange molecules. This is some great research published by NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre in the astrophysical journal Letters. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From buckyballs to fungal spores, looking at why radiation permeates through space has interesting effects and can help us lead to discovering weather events here on... Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.